Welcome to Ordinarily Extraordinary, Conversations with Women in STEM. I'm your host, Kathy Nelson, an electrical engineer that loves to hear and share stories of other women in STEM careers. I'm really excited to introduce you to the first podcast guest, Carrie Livingston. Carrie's an electrical engineer that's worked in the utility industry for about 27 years. She has a deep breadth of knowledge and experience, in addition to some great perspectives on college and everyday life. I'm absolutely delighted to have her as the first guest on Ordinarily Extraordinary. Thank you for being my first guest on my podcast. You are so welcome. (laughs) Um, So this is Carrie Livingston, who I have known for, I was actually trying to think about this, like how long have we known each other? I I think it's like close to 30 years because I had a 30th reunion last summer for high school. So we would have met in college. I have no idea what year we met in college. And I don't think we hung out that much in college though either, did we? No. Like I hung out with your husband more than I hung out with you. Yes, exactly. But it was very easy to like uh, know who the women were because there were so few of us. I know. I was thinking about that. We had like, I think four women in a class of 75, if I remember correctly. And what sort of disturbed me about that is my dad, when he graduated or got his PhD, well, no, I think when he graduated in, I don't even know what his undergrad was in, but some kind of technology field. He had like the same percentage, 30 years or 34 years beforehand. And I'm like, really? Like we've made no progress in 30 years? So I don't know. But yeah, it definitely was easy to, to find us. And um, But yeah, so how was your, like, what do you remember from college and your college experience? Hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, college was quite the experience. I mean, it's like you look at it at the time and some of the classes were really hard. But at the same point, you kind of look back in time and you think, oh, those are some of the best years of my younger life, right? Before kids, it was the time to kind of explore life and become an adult and socialize, meet people from all over. Um, I do remember that there were certain classes and certain professors that were like, oh my goodness, am I going to make it through? You know, why am I in engineering? You know, because they were challenging or you would go to a class and find out the average on a test was 40%. (laughs) And it's like, you came from high school where that meant you failed. (laughs) You know, you might as well drop out of school. And in college, it meant something completely different. And it's like even getting through a class with that percentage on a test and getting a B or C in the class, you're like, what does this grade really mean if I can only get that percentage on the test? So it it was an eye opener that way. And now that I look back on things, I kind of think that that's kind of part of the way life is in your career where um, there isn't a certain answer, you know, you, you can't like have a question posed at you and have the answer spot on and get the 100% on it, right? I mean, it, it's not that easy to come up with answers all the time. No, and one of the things that I always thought was interesting about 
NDSU where we went to school was Electrical Engineering 101 Fortran Programming. Why? Like, how is this an introduction to electrical engineering? That one always confused me as like, I don't even, I don't know if it's still like that. That was the most bizarre so. class. I think Fortran is too archaic well, now to <laughs> Okay, good point. <laughs> okay, maybe it's like a different computer language and probably not Fortran. Excellent point. Um, that, that was like one of the things I thought was so bizarre. Like, how does this introduce you to engineering at all? Like that was, I don't know, weird. So one of the things I know about you in college, you did ROTC. So why? No, no, no. I was, I was just guard. It wasn't ROTC. Oh. I was oh. just in the guard. Yeah. But you were in the guard in yeah. college? Yeah. I joined actually my senior year of high school. So the difference between ROTC and guard is that ROTC, you, you're in during college and then you can decide to go active or join the guard after you are in it in college, right? So I joined and usually you're a officer, right? So I joined the guard my senior year in high school and it was with the band and I was enlisted. So in the band you join, you get, because you have to try out and be at a certain level in order to be a part of it, um, you get a higher rank. So I started out as a PFC, a private first class, which is an E3 versus an E1. And then uh, I went to basic training just a few days after my graduate high school graduation. And then I was in it through college to pay for college. So that, it, it was a good deal, you know, at the time. Um, I, it paid for like three quarters of the tuition and then I got the GI Bill, the guard GI Bill. So I got a certain amount of money for the months that I was in college. So September through June or May. And then I got my guard pay too. So, so uh, relatively, I mean, back when we went to school, it was much more affordable. Yeah. Um, so I did not have to really work outside of that. I lived at home, you know, so I didn't really have to work outside of that to pay for tuition. I walked away with no loans or anything from college. So it was a good deal that way. So is that why you decided to do it, to pay for college? Yes, very much. So I had an older sister and older brother that had already joined. And my sister was the one that kind of, I, I don't want to say coerced me, but she definitely um, suggested that it would be a good idea and that it was a good gig, you know, so, um, and I don't regret doing it. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is that she told me before I go to like basic training that I should be able to do 20 push-ups, good push-ups and be able to run the two mile in under 18 minutes and then I'd be okay. And so I did work out a lot my senior year of high school in order to make sure that I was comfortable with all that. And so I didn't really have an issue at all with getting through basic training. But I remember when I came back from basic training, my mom told me that she was so surprised that I made it through. She thought I'd be sent back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and basic 
basically what she said is that she thought I was too naive and too sweet and that it would be just way too much for me. And, you know, I made it through. Uh, it was an eye opener. You know, you do, I hate to say it, but you know, like, I always thought I was just kind of average about everything. And going there, it was like, oh my goodness, I am smart compared to most people. You know, I think it was just kind of a different view on people and their, the, you know, how they grew up, the community that they lived in, the people, their history or whatever. But it was definitely a, an eye opener that made me realize that not everybody is as blessed as I was to be able to, to uh, do as well as I have. So where was your basic training? It was at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I really just can't even imagine. That's not something that I would ever be able to do, I don't think. I mean, like, I could run. I could probably do the push-ups. But other than that, I don't know that I could. I pre- Actually, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be able to make it. <laughs> I would have been home. <laughs> well, I did have some experiences through it where, like, you know, the drill sergeants are yelling at you and my dad of course had um 20 years in the navy and his nickname was mad dog and he could shout and get upset and everything so when these drill sergeants were looking at me i just kept or shouting at me i kept on looking at them thinking to myself that you know they probably have a daughter at home that is wrapped around his finger and you know that this person is not this facade that they're presenting. So it made it a little bit easier for me to just kind of like understand the, the, the reason why they're yelling at me rather than getting caught up into um, what they were actually saying and taking it personally or getting upset with it or wanting to fight back for it. You know, it was like a game. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll just stand here. You can yell at me. And the other thing too is as long as you're not the weakest link, then most of the time you're okay. So basically if you're like the target of like everybody that's been bullied for like your whole life, you're going to get bullied in the military. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't know if it's necessarily that way. You know, if you work hard, you're not, going to have that happen but if you're fighting against it or if uh, they don't think you're working as hard as you should be they're going to be on you right okay interesting okay so I'm going to jump ahead Um, so tell me what you do for a job now and then we'll talk about like what you've done for jobs because we've worked together over the years and so but what do you do now for a job Okay, so now my title is Interconnect Specialist. So I work for a company that does a lot of renewable power and builds the solar and the wind and batteries. And what I do is I largely take my engineering background and I look at um, these agreements, you know, the agreements with whoever is purchasing the power and also the agreement with um, 
basically the transmission provider or owner. And I make sure that we pull out everything out of that agreement that is what I would say a task or an action that we must complete in, a, in order to be compliant with that agreement. And I make sure that this company and the people in it, the team, um, gets that done in order so that we can flip the switch and turn on the generation and start making money. Um, and it does take a engineering background because a lot of it is also regarding, it's regarding like the planning side of power. So you have to be able to understand what models are required. Um, it, it also goes to like the communication side of it to understand what is required um, in order to communicate with the renewable site and then SCADA as long and as well as like protection. So that is a good portion of what I'm doing. And then I get drawn into the NERC compliance side of things. So what the federal side of things says that we have to, um, it's documentation basically, you know, being able to provide documents that were being compliant with the standards and rules of the government when it comes to the power industry. So I do that. And then I've also been involved with um, dealing with how, how the generation site works, talks to the transmission site with the SCADA system and stuff like that. So um, kind of, kind of like a project manager in a sense that needs to have that technical background. So this is a job that you who now have been in for like a few months after working in the utility industry for what, like 20 years? Yeah, yeah. more, I was my last, uh, the last company I was with, I was with them for a little over 20 years. And then of course I, I was with another utility prior to that. Cool. Yeah. So what you're doing now with the renewables and the contracts and the project management, how does that compare to what you spent 20, over 20 years doing in the utility industry? Do you like what you're doing now? Do you miss actually working for a utility and doing engineering and design work? Or are you happy to kind of get out of the engineering design work? Um, I liked both really. I mean, I, I think it was time for me to try something different and this is completely different. Um, at times it's a little bit uncomfortable because it's such a big change after 20 years, but at the same time, it is refreshing to see how a different organization works, to um, be a part of something that is so big right now it's exciting on that, that standpoint. On the other hand, you know, working for my past utility, I would say, it, especially like when I first started there, it was pretty interesting. And it was kind of not a lot of processes or standards in line. And, you know, I was there for creating all of that, you know, when I first started as a physical engineer there, you pretty much 
had to teach yourself. There really wasn't anybody training you in and there was no documents to say, hey, this is how you, this is what you need to do. This is how you do it. There was, there was nothing. So it was digging into the specs, trying to understand exactly what you're ordering for equipment and putting it all together and figuring out you know, coming up with the field crews and figuring out where the problems are and how to learn from that. And um, so it, that was really quite fun. As time went on, the standards, and standards are a good thing, so I'm not trying to say that they're not, but the standards come in place and it takes a little bit of the fun out of it because, you know, you're just using the same documents over and over. You're, you're doing what you did because that's your standard, you know, and you're not necessarily creating something new based on what you think could be right or wrong. Like, you're you know? not thinking and designing like you used to do, right? Right, right. I mean, I, I, right. Had, this, I had the same issue in my role at the utility too. And you just feel like at some point you're just churning out paper, which is not very interesting. So I completely right. understand that. How do you feel? So the, the company that you're working for now is really all renewables. So what are your thoughts on like where the utility industry is going into renewables versus where it has been with a lot of like coal and base generation and going, moving from like central power to like I don't want to say microgrids because we're not going to be in microgrids for a long time, but a lot of like distributed generation, which is what you're working on now. What are your thoughts on that? It is very interesting, you know, I, to see these coal plants being retired and then knowing that solar and wind alone um, can't serve all the needs you know, it's not a base generation plant. If the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, then you have nothing, you know, and plus it's not a steady uh, input of generation. So it is interesting knowing that side of it and being on this generation side and seeing everybody, you know, purchase more and get rid of their coal. I think it is kind of fascinating and exciting for me to see these battery storage projects come up that are to kind of, you know, levelize the solar so that it will um, be charging when the sun is out and discharge when the sun is going down, you know, so I, and that's relatively new technology. There's um, batteries have a, a long way to go and I imagine um, they're going to become more compact and smaller and be able to do more than what they are right now but it is very interesting to uh, be a part of this new technology. I don't know all the um, technical parts of the battery system but just being part of a company that's you know stepping up, they don't know everything either, right? And just being part of it and seeing it grow and be part of that, the leader in this area is exciting, very exciting. And um, I know right now this company is going to be 
employing a battery storage system that's going to be the largest ever in our nation, you know? So it's like to be a part of something like that and see it successfully complete it and work. It's like, wow, that's, you know, it's, it's amazing. I haven't been on that side before. I've always been on the transmission side where it's just like delivering, um, you know, make, doing the substations and making sure that the power is actually delivered to the customer, right? So it's, it's an interesting, um, it's interesting to start on one side of the, the fence and then go to the other side of the fence, you know, and I never thought in a hundred years I'd ever be on the generation side of things. So give me an idea of like the scale of these wind and solar and battery installations that you work on just so like so that people that might be listening to this can compare it to what they're thinking of like rooftop solar and stuff like that. So like, can you give a comparison to how big these are that you're talking about? Well, like the batteries alone are the ones that I'm looking at. There's like three battery stations that are like side by side um, physically. I mean, they're different. Um, they're being hooked up with solar. So it's three different solars. The batteries themselves is like, there's three of them and it's 115, 115. And I believe this last one's like 230 megawatts. So that's just batteries in themselves, right? And then solar, you know, we have like, I'd say roughly like 20 projects going on right now are solar and maybe 30 wind and they vary between like 200 megawatts to 400 megawatts, you know? So, I mean, it is, it, it's not necessarily like a, a coal plant, but it's a lot of solar, a lot of um, wind. So like physically, how big would these installations be? Acres and acres. It's it's a large, I went out to one site and um, it, it takes up a lot of ground. And it, this particular place was kind of in the desert um, in California, really close to the Arizona border. And, um, you know, I, I'll be honest, my, my dimension in my head of how big it is, I, I think of like a large substation and, and it makes a large substation, you know, look minuscule. So um, it, it does take up a lot of land. You know, I, I would say, well, I'm not going to guess because I'm terrible with <laughs> dimensions. So what about like the, like the battery storage? So I've seen like I've the big, the biggest battery installation that I've seen that was supposed to be a um, storage facility was like basically the back of a semi truck. So that's the biggest that I've seen. So are the ones that you're talking about, are they bigger than that? I'm assuming they must be. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Now, these haven't been, I haven't actually gone on site to, um, after the batteries have been, well, the site has been constructed and the batteries are installed. So I don't really have um, an idea of how this um, will impact or how big it's going to be, but definitely um, it's bigger than that. 
Yeah. And there's a lot of cooling and talking about the interesting thing too, is a lot of talk about all the extra power it takes to cool these batteries when they need to be cooled and, and the auxiliary power that goes along with that. There's quite a bit and how they meter that. Um, and, you know, so it's, it's very complex, these SCADA programs, which I am by far not a SCADA um, person, but the metering too, the, what I should say is more of the metering is very complex. It's not like simple the way that it would be in a substation um, because of the fact that you have this generation site that you're getting auxiliary power probably from the transmission owner and you're selling um, the product to the transmission owner plus you have your solar and your batteries and I, it just gets complex. Yeah and I, I'm thinking that when you're talking about like Arizona and California the amount of cooling that you have to do to keep batteries at their optimum temperature because batteries have to be kept at an optimum temperature or else they fail a lot faster is probably a lot. And you have to probably make sure that you have reliable electricity to cool them, regardless of whether you have wind or solar, which is kind of ironic from, right. since that's what you're trying to do is to keep, you know, you're trying to do the storage so that if there's not wind and solar, you have something that you can draw energy from, which is interesting. One of the things I think is kind of, I had thought that the, the utility that I worked for had been pretty progressive with its um, renewable plan. I think that they were trying to get to the 50% by 2045 or something like that. And then I went to one of my daughter's um, college classes to talk to them about climate change. They just come back from a climate Nobel conference um, and so I went into, you know, just talk to them about, you know, what utilities perspectives are and stuff. And I went in thinking, you know, oh, this utility that I worked for was really progressive and we were, you know, going to be half renewable by 2045 and everything was good. And then we like quickly got into the fact that in 11 years, you were hitting the point of no return on the environmental side. You go, 2045 is significantly more than... 11 years and that's 50% renewable. Why are we feeling so good about this? It's <laughs> kind of right. what I was thinking. Like I completely came out of that conversation with these college kids with a completely different viewpoint because I went in it with like a utility viewpoint and I came out with like these young kids are the ones who are going to have to be dealing with what we, um, and I'm not talking the utility. I'm not talking the utility side. I'm just talking about like we, our generation has, and the generations before us have created for them, and it kind of like made me step back and go like, you know, we're not doing we're not doing good enough by our kids' standards. So it, it's all political. I mean, I should say all political, but there's political the political side of it too. You know, I know from being on the renewable side now that. The company that I used to work for, um, because they are shutting down the coal plants, that where their coal plants are located, there's certain, I think it's just certain counties that have now come up 
with, um, I don't know if you call them bills, but they have made the decision that no um, new generation or transmission can be built there. I think it's the transmission primarily because you have to build that line to mm. the new renewable site. So, and the, the renewable company knows that that what is going on. So you, ha I mean, it's that politicalness where you have this community that their jobs are from that coal plant, right? And it's getting shut down. So the community is basically saying, we're not going to have renewables here. We're not going to support it. You can't, you know. So, I mean, it is interesting. Which seems to me like it'd be a little bit counterintuitive because if you built renewables there, which there is some opportunities for some good renewables there, then it would continue, you'd continue to have jobs versus trying to, I mean, otherwise those jobs are just to be eliminated and sent someplace else. So it's kind of an interesting right. perspective that they're trying to have. Okay, so let's talk about your, um, so in the job that you spent probably most of your career and tell me what a typical day would be like for you. And I know, okay, typical day is really difficult because every day is different. I mean, we, we worked at the same company and I completely, like every day I was working on something else, but what would like a typical day for you have been? Like when you were like in your engineering and design, kind of like in that major stage of your engineering career? Um, generally, I had several projects going at once at different, they were at different um, times in the project. So, you know, as I was going along, I could be working with a design tech, someone who does the drawings and placing out, yeah, I could have a right away person come to me and say, we're thinking about buying this lot of land, so many acres of land uh, for the substation. We need you to come up with a, see if you can place that substation in this amount of land and how it would work. You know? And a lot of times you're not getting the best land or maybe the access to it is a little tricky. So, I mean, I could be working with a technician doing that. Um, and then I may be going back to another project where maybe I'm at the point where I'm buying equipment for it. There's sometimes very long lead times to buy equipment. Um, and so I'm specking things out, writing a lot of specs, sending them out to companies uh, vendors and having that relationship with vendors, uh, and especially if once you buy something and something isn't going right, being able to have that relationship to figure things out and get the right thing. So um, like, what kind of equipment would you be buying for a substation? Like what goes into a substation? Um, I, being the physical engineer, I took care of everything from um, buying the, the fill and the gravel and everything that goes in the sub to the steel. And then what I prefer to do is more on the electrical side, which is buying the switches and the circuit breakers and the potential transformers and the big power transformers and 
um, maybe a wave trap or the control house. Um, all of that that you see within the fence of the substation is what I bought, including the fence. <laughs> I remember buying fences too on the telecom side. That was always exciting. The fence spec. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'll let you go back to what your like yeah. daily life was like. Well, and kind of on that note, um, <laughs> I remember one of my first jobs or projects was like creating the sign that goes on the fence because there was a code of how <laughs> how often it needs to be on the fence and how big the letters were and what should be on it and stuff like that. So I mean it is kind of funny that you say that. There's all these some of these mundane things that um you're like, why did how did why do you need an engineer to do that? But I mean I guess you gotta start out somewhere, right? Well, and the thing that I think is funny, like, so in our power classes in college, a substation was what, like, I'm a square. I'm trying to even think what it was. Like, I didn't even know what a substation was when I was in school as a engineer. I mean, I think that that's changed now. I think that students have a lot more access to equipment and things like that. But you, you didn't even talk about, like, you knew that there was a transformer there, but that was about all that you talked about being in a substation when you're in college. There was no discussion about fencing. There was certainly no discussion about signage. And yeah, so I think it's it's interesting how you do get into all of these things that you're like, this doesn't make any sense for why I'm doing this. Like, it seems like an administrative right. task that you're doing as opposed to like a design task. So yeah. I know like when you were... Um, at one of your jobs, you were on like an IEEE transformer committee. Am I right about that? Yes. So yes. what what was that? What did you do there? That was basically um, part participating in writing the standards for all the transform. Well, every part of the power transformer, along with like the smaller uh, potential transformers and even the HVDC transformers. So I, you know, it could be a standard on the bushings that are on the transformer, making sure that, and it was interesting because um, a lot of the standard committees are heavily um, biased by the manufacturers. Maybe bias isn't the right word, but the, the manufacturers do a good job at sending people there to be a part of this committee. The utilities, especially smaller utilities, don't necessarily want to spend the money to send people to be a part of the committee. And the committees do have, you know, rules that you need to be at so many part meetings in order to be uh, active participant or member. And um, that means that you can actually vote on these standards. So as you as I participated, like I would say there, it was interesting to listen to the conversation because um, you found out that say you're ordering a a certain bushing and you think you're specking it and you're getting it exactly for that spec. It you may not be. You may be getting something that's nameplated something else for a higher because higher um, voltage or whatever insulation on that bushing because it's cheaper for them to make many, many, many 
115 kV bushings rather than a 41.6 kV bushing because 41.6 kV is is not typical, right? So they're going to send you what is typical and not necessarily um, what you think you're buying. And they're just going to nameplate it differently. The other thing that was interesting is that um, when you buy a transformer and you say, I want a transformer that on the high side is 2,000 amps, sometimes you overload that transformer 25%, but your bushings may only be rated for that 2,000 amps. You know, so you have to really look into these things because the assumption is is that if I spec out this transformer and I say I may overload it, then everything can be overloaded. But that may not be what actually is true. So you have to look into more than just the nameplate. You have to like understand what's behind it and what's behind that particular manufacturer then. Right, right. Or the industry standard. Right. If you looked up that industry standard of transformer bushings, then you would see that they're only rated at certain that their their selection of bushings is a lot less than um, what you expect it to be, maybe. Hmm. So I recently got involved in IEEE standards and. I know like some of the standards that I get involved in are like 1500 pages and things like that. So I'm assuming that yours are probably similar and you're probably trying to like dig into all of these things and figure out where to find stuff, which is, I have to say one of the most challenging things. And I also have to say like IEEE, great organization, but there are processes in there that are so archaic and so not technology friendly that finding things is really, really hard. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, And I would say being part of that committee too, you know, especially as a young engineer, I think you turn to that to find a clear answer. (laughs) And it's, it's not, they purposely make it not clear because they do not want to be responsible to design something, right? They just want to give you a range or guidelines or kind of an idea in a way. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think that is kind of difficult to maneuver, especially when you're young, first starting out and you don't realize it. You think you're going to turn to that book or the computer and look up a standard and find exactly what you need to do. And it doesn't do that for you. I actually haven't found like many things that do provide you the answers like you think they're going to. It's more like a guideline for what you need to do, which is, I don't know, I I guess good and bad because you have to think about what you're doing as opposed to just like putting stuff in without really thinking about it, which is probably good. So one of the things that I... like I said, I've just recently started getting into IEEE standards. But one of the things that really stood out to me going to standards meetings, while I feel like women have been making, I don't know if I would say strides, not great strides, but we've, you know, 
there are more women in engineering than there used to be. I have never seen fewer women in any place than I have at an IEEE standards meeting. Was this similar to, did you have an experience similar to that? I think when I first started to go, I would definitely say yes. Um, I wouldn't, it's not 50-50 at this time, no. And I would say that a large number, I mean, they're like tenured members that in the transformer committee, what I see that happens is that you have an engineer that maybe worked for a manufacturer. He retires from that at say, I'm just throwing out an age, say at 60. And then he becomes his consultant for utilities to use to help them back and be their transformer expert or their, you know, to use them in these situations that maybe the utility doesn't have the, the expertise in, and then they work and they stay part of the transformer committee. So you have engineers there that, you know, maybe are 80, 85, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're very mature. And so, um, yeah, and there's a large number of them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and then when you see younger people, well, let's just even say middle-aged people, um, they come and go. You don't necessarily see them stay for longevity. You know, maybe they're part of the committee for two or three years, and then they move on to something else or... So, I mean, it is kind of interesting from that standpoint, but I think that's kind of like a generation difference too, where I, I'm not sure. I, at first I was going to say maybe, you know, everybody stayed with their company longer, but I'm not sure if that's really what, what it is or not, but um, I definitely see that. I tend to kind of think that they find these niches and these roles that they like to do. And so they're comfortable there. And so I think some will just stay in those consultant roles because that's what they know and that's what they like doing. And they figure out a way to, to do it, which is probably beneficial for the industry. But I would say like the, the thing that I noticed when at the, the couple of standards meetings that I've gone to, and we're in you know, two completely different fields of engineering, but the one that I went to, I swear there was like four women out of like 600. And oh, I was wow. like, it was, it was, it was overwhelming to me from a standpoint that like over the years and we, you know, we've both been engineers for going on 30 years, which is insane. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, but you know, like I kind of feel like that's where things were 30 years ago, but things have been gradually, you know, more women have been coming into the industry and um, not that there's ever been a lot. I'm still like, if there's even 10% of most of the things that I go to, I'm pretty happy, but this one was just like, it was so low on the, on the female participation, but it might just be the area that I was in versus what you're in. So I don't, I don't know, but it was very, it was very noticeable how few women there were. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be honest, 
And I think there's still engineers, but there's a fair amount of, um, like I said, manufacturers go. So then you have some people that go in order to build their network to sell the transformers, right? Because they're part of the manufacturer. And so not, I don't know if they're all engineers or not, but that could be where some of the women are. Mm. I know at least, I know at least that two women that were more on that side of things. Um, I don't know if both of them had their engineering degree. I don't, I don't know. So it's a, I don't yes. know if you see that as much, maybe, do you see that on your standards committee or? No, the, the, the people that I, I mean, everyone was, everyone seemed pretty technical. Like, I mean, it was, it would, it definitely, it definitely did not feel salesy or anything like that. It definitely felt very, very technical, but I don't know. I mean, I've, I've only gone to two, so I'm, I mean, there could be things that I had that I'm not aware of yet. So I don't know. Um, so what made you decide that you wanted to be an engineer? You know, I started out college not really knowing what I wanted to be. And because I was undecided, they had me fill out some kind of like survey thing. And I was general studies, but they put me underneath a biology um, advisor. And I wasn't really sure if I wanted to be there because I always really liked math and calculus and all of that because it just came a little bit easier to me. Mm -hmm. So, um, and if I was in biology, I really wasn't going to be doing that. I did like biology too. So um, basically my sister saw a flyer on biomedical engineering and handed it to me. And I thought, oh, well, that'd be cool. I can still have that biology background and use my math. And so I decided to go in and that, and at the time at NDSU, that wasn't, and I think that time everywhere, maybe it wasn't a major in itself. And biomedical was kind of like you hodgepodge a couple of degrees together. So um, I just, at NDSU, it was um, electrical engineer with a bio option. So that's, how I got into it. Um, like I said, I always liked math. It seemed like math was something for me that, I mean, I, there was challenges. I don't want to act like I smoked through all of it, but it seemed like something that I could do with relatively e relative ease and, um, you always ended up with an answer at the end, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I totally understand that. Cause I always said that if I wasn't an engineer, I would have taught calculus. I loved calculus. That was like by far mm -hmm. my favorite class. Um, not that I can probably do any calculus anymore. Cause weirdly, when you are an engineer, you rarely use math. So that's kind of right. sad in my opinion. Um, so you didn't, you didn't go into college knowing that you wanted to be an engineer? No. No, I didn't even really know. Well, I didn't really know what engineers even did. Although my dad worked in the engineering department as a tech. 
I don't think I really asked him too much and he didn't really tell me too much either, you know, until I had that flyer and asked about it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, I mean, I had no idea what engineers did either. And um, like, I, I didn't start out in engineering either. And um, all I knew is that I liked math and science. And then when I changed to engineering, I'm like, well, what kind of engineer do I want to be? Because I like math and science. So everyone says you should go into engineering. And my brother-in-law was an electrical engineer and my dad taught electronics. So I'm like, oh, let's try this. But it was very random. Whereas now I think kids get exposed to engineering, um, at least in the state of Minnesota, they get exposed to it starting in kindergarten, which is great. Well, maybe. I'm not now I'm going to think about this because my daughters had no interest in going into engineering whatsoever. Maybe it's because they knew what it was. <laughs> it can be yeah. some advantage to not knowing because you're like, I have no idea what I'm getting into. Um, but then, you know, like a lot of the men that I work with, they're like, oh yeah, I tore things apart when I was a kid and would put them back together. Did you do anything like that? Because I certainly did not. That was, you know, I, I didn't no, even have Legos. Not. I don't really recall doing too much of that. I did goofy things, you know, like I'd lick the battery, put my dog, you know. <laughs> don't do that with the big batteries. <laughs> <laughs> but not, not really. I wouldn't say, you know, there was puzzles and things like that that I enjoyed doing. Um, but I don't remember like taking things apart no, I don't remember doing any of that. Um, I will say that when I was like in high school, I, I thought about going in the medical field and I also thought about teaching. So, I mean, like my mind was all over the place as to what I wanted to do. I just wasn't sure. And like you were saying about your daughters, I think my mom pretty much talked me out of going in the medical field because she was a nurse and she was like, it's a hard job, don't do it. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll check off medical and uh, now what, you know? So, I mean, I realize that you weren't telling your daughter that, but um, her daughters, but I, I mean, I do think your parents kind of one way or another influence you. Now I have a daughter that did go into engineering, different chemical. And I don't know if she asked me very much to make that decision. You know, I don't think it was based off of anything me or my husband talked about because he's an electrical engineer too. My um, third child, my son, he thought about, he's all over the place right now. He's a junior in high school. And he thought about electrical engineering and did a, job shadow with a fellow engineer at my previous employer and this was a relay protection engineer that he shadowed and he thought it was really boring he just thought it was like watching paint dry but of course you know I think it's kind of um kind of not realistic as a kid 
to really understand that uh, most jobs, you know, aren't necessarily exciting from moment to moment. It's kind of like you're in a marathon, you know, it's like, yeah, it's boring. And when you job shadow, you're probably just watching like mile number seven, not too exciting. It's more exciting when you cross the finish line and you see that you accomplished it. Or if he was watching a relay fail, that's exciting. Right, right. <laughs> As our power professor would have said, big sparks. Yes. So, um, okay, so let me ask you another question. So you mentioned your husband is also an engineer. So you guys worked together for a while. So just for the audience, um, Carrie and I worked together and her husband also worked at the same company. How was it working with your husband? You know, I had no problem with it. Everybody used to always ask us that. And there was a lot of comfort there that it was really easy to throw a question out there or thoughts without the intimidation of like, how would this person respond or is this stupid or um it it was nice to have that that ease and and the comfort of just like wait is it really this easy you know am i thinking about this right and to be able to have that with someone um and then also knowing that that person always had your back because I mean, let's face it. Sometimes when you work at a company, everybody wants to shine. Um, and at times people can throw you under the bus in order to make themselves shine more. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know that, um, that was never going to be the case with my husband. So I, I didn't mind it. I think it made other people a little bit more uncomfortable about our situation than he and I felt about working together. And I know his response actually always was that eventually we're going to be retired. We need to know if we can get along. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just an experiment in like earlier life. Yeah. <laughs> That actually does sound like something Joe would say. I could totally see him like, we need to plan for like 25 years from now to see if we can get along on a daily basis. <laughs> I would say the one downside is that it was hard to turn off work when you come home. And it still kind of is, you know, I mean, he still works at that company. I know everybody that works there. And he'll ask me my opinion on how maybe he should approach something that's that he has a technical opinion on and how to approach it to someone else. Because the other thing I would say about working at a company so long is that it becomes, it no longer really becomes about, um, I think you walk in to a company thinking that they're always trying to do the right thing no matter what and then after you spend so many years there you realize yeah they're trying to do the right thing but everybody has their own motives and they are pushing their own motives and not necessarily looking at what is best for the company 
but looking at it as this is my idea. We should be doing my idea. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I do find that, you know, so he comes to me and asks me questions and I try to be, give him perspective on, um, different thoughts and how he may be approached and the way it may come across. And hopefully we help each other out that way, but, um, it's interesting. It's, it's hard to turn off, you know, I mean, we have talked about work and engineering and projects and how to handle projects probably more than we should have at home. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I mean, my husband and I work both work in the utility industry. He's not an engineer, but we'll still talk about work, probably not to the same detail that you and, and your husband do. Um, because I mean, you guys were much, much closer on things and it was the same company, but it's really hard to not talk about it. And you kind of have to, I think, make a significant effort not to. And, you know, and sometimes that might be the only time that you have to talk to each other. Like, I'm guessing you probably didn't necessarily have time at work to talk about things. And you're like, oh, well, you know, when you have some downtime, it's just natural to talk about, even though you don't really mean to? I mean, does that, does that make sense? Is that kind of what would happen? I'm kind of guessing, projecting. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say so. You know, I think if we were in different industries that maybe we would not carry on the conversation as long, you know, because it's also like, it's like talking about family in a way. Uh, I mean, like you talk about someone that maybe you're having an issue with, a sister-in-law or whatever um it kind of the drama folds out and when something happens you're kind of talking about it so much and then you're maybe influencing the other person's view of that person or maybe Mm -hmm. that you know I mean so it is kind of kind of tricky to to deal with that all um and be like, if you weren't working at the same place, maybe you could be more objective or maybe it just wouldn't, you wouldn't continue talking about that person. Cause, cause you don't know them. Know. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any issues or challenges or benefits that you found to being a woman in engineering? Like, do you see any differences from what you think it would be like if you were a male in engineering? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I like to think that things are changing all the time. You know, I think that the women before us uh, would think that there has been long, more accomplishments made or more stride in finding us being equal. But, you know, I I think that... um, there's things that you are looked at differently. I mean, I had a talk with someone recently and it was a male who used to be in management and we were talking about how the fact that, you know, studies show that women are still paid less than men in most mm-hmm. occupations, you know, along yep. the 
And one of the things is he said that, you know, you can make numbers say whatever you want them to say, which I somewhat agree. I somewhat agree. But I, I do think that in general, men are paid more even in engineering mm-hmm. and promote it more yep. than women are. And one of the things that he brought up was like, well, women, you know, if you get pregnant, you're out of work for an amount of time. And then if you look at a man who started work at the same time, he has more experience. So why shouldn't he get paid more than you and get promoted before you? Because he has more experience. And, you know, I brought to his attention that, you know, it's, it's only six weeks, you know, for one child. And so if, if on average, you're only having two children, I mean, that's part of at least where we work. That was kind of part of your vacation too at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you had to use a week of your vacation. Um, usually you're not that far into your career. So you only have two and a half, three weeks vacation, right? So, I mean, granted, it's a little bit more, but if you're looking at a person now with 15 years experience, is that amount of time really, I mean, it's not even a year, not even a year. And you're telling me that much more experience is going to provide that man more money and a promotion or a promotion. You know, I just find it surprising that, and that person was the same age as me. So it's like, to me, it's very surprising that that's the mentality. So my 14 year old son made a comment that women get paid the same as men. And I'm like, no, they don't like, look at the studies, look at the data. And he's like, yeah, but women typically have jobs that pay less. And I'm like, no, for the same job, women will get paid less. And he was adamantly arguing with me at 14 years old that that's not true. And I think like, I think regardless of how old you are, I think that there is this misconception by men about that being true and about what causes it. And I don't, I don't, I don't know what the solution is of getting past that, but I know like, I mean, you start looking into management level and then senior staffing level and executive level and the number of women just plummet, like just dramatically, you know, there's not the promotions, there's not the opportunities um, in a lot of cases. And I don't, I don't necessarily know. I mean, there's, there's in engineering, there's less women in the pool to start with. And then, you know, some women get out of engineering or they decide to do something else, you know, so I think that pool just goes dramatically down, but then I think it's also harder to move into executive levels um, when you are female. And I don't, I don't totally know why that is, but you look at the number of women, there's, there's not that many, there's, there's more, I mean, there's actually, I mean, like there's actually probably a couple handfuls of women that are CEOs of major utilities now, which I think is phenomenal. I mean, that's like, that's great to see. And even, you know, like in the co-ops in the world that we have worked in, in Minnesota, there's actually a lot of women CEOs now, which is great. Mm -hmm. Right. It is, it is getting better, but the interesting thing is that talking to my daughter, who I said was an engineer as well and is working at a manufacturing plant, um, 
So she's only been there, you know, nine months or so. And um, like we were kind of talking to her about how she likes the company, whether or not it's a good fit or not. And she made the comment that uh, it's a stepping stone. She said that at first she thought it was going to be great, a lot of opportunities, but the women that she really um, looked up to and, and liked are leaving and they were in management for leadership. And she said, and they said that they were leaving because it's just too much of a good old boy system here. And the men, it's just too tough to work with these men that have these same old attitudes. So my daughter said that she doesn't necessarily think that it's the place that she wants to stay very long if that's the environment. You know, and I thought that was kind of heart-wrenching in a way to hear. And I realize manufacturing is probably at a different evolution of, of uh, equal rights than, than some other companies, you know, I mean, it is probably more your good old boy system going on, but. But you think utilities, I mean, utilities have a pretty good old boy network too, or at least they have historically, you know, and I mean, and that's where we've worked for the majority of our careers, not all of our Mm -hmm. careers. So I don't know, but it is, it's, I think that's sad. That makes me sad to hear because, you know, you want women to have opportunities. You want them to feel like they can do everything that they want them, especially if it's your daughter, you know, you want her to feel like she can do whatever she wants to, that she's not already being like shoehorned into, I don't know what I want to say. It's shoehorned into a place that she doesn't want to be, or feel like she has to move companies because of that environment. And it should be, and we both know that it's not, but it should be that the companies should be the ones saying like, we need to change. We need to have a different atmosphere. We need to have a different culture. We should be encouraging women to go into these fields. We should be encouraging young people to go into these fields. We should be, you know, validating that diversity and bring those different viewpoints versus trying to, you know, see them go away. But I think that, you know, there's been certain points probably in all of our careers where we feel like we've been shoehorned out of places and that companies haven't necessarily stood behind us and done what you think they should to support you. Right. Right. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's, it's sad. You know, I think about one of the first jobs that I interviewed for and I didn't get the job. One of the first questions, and this was a co-op in Minnesota was, so tell me, why as a woman would you ever think of going into engineering? You know, and I, what, I mean, it's a, what did you say? <laughs> um, well, I just said, I'm sure it's the same as why men go into engineering. Like math and science. Like... Yeah. I, yeah, I still, I remember that. I remember that, you know, it's like, okay, I guess I'm not getting this job maybe, you know, I, you know, I don't, it it is crazy. And at the time that I went to school, I really didn't think that people thought like that. I know I'm the same way. Like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think that either. And I, and I don't think that I did when I was in school. It really wasn't until I started working that I started feeling that way. 
but you had, so your first, well, no, not your first job, your second job. So your second, so your second job, like the, the company that you worked at in like Western suburbs, they were uh, kind of like challenging. That was a challenging environment as a woman to be in too, wasn't it? Yeah, very much. That was kind of the manufacturing side of things. Um, yes. And I had just had my first daughter. And I remember, you know, when you put your daughter in daycare, they get sick all the time. And it, they pretty much told me that my husband needs to take care of my, my daughter, you know, and at the time he and I would alternate. So if she had a fever or whatever, we would alternate who would take off from work and go take care of her. But um, they were not very supportive of that at all. Um, the other interesting thing was I was still in the guard and they thought they had the right to tell me whether or not I could go to annual training in my guard duty. It was like, this is a federal law guys, mm. you know? So, I mean, I, there was challenges there. Yes. Is there any advice that you would give to girls thinking about going to engineering or any STEM fields? Is there anything you want to, any advice you want to give them? You know, I mean, that's, I wish I had really great advice to give, but to me, you do have to go after your passion. And if that's something that you really love, I would say, yes, go after it. But I, I do think that you have to be able to maneuver some of this um, stereotypes and biases that are in the field that we're in. Um, and beyond that, I guess what I would say from my advice too, is that you don't have to put up with everything just because you're getting a paycheck. There are other jobs, other places to go and find the place that you enjoy and like and want to wake up and go to work to. Um, staying someplace because it has good vacation or it's better pain than other places is not a good reason to stay in, um, around people who don't support you the way that you need to be supported. So my advice would be go after your dream and make sure that you don't settle for a job that you're not happy with. Yep, amen to that. Um, is there anything that you would have done differently in your career or your selection of career or anything that you would have changed? Well, in my career, my, my, probably my biggest regret was not leaving my last employer soon enough. I mean, I think it is a good company, but I think I stayed too long and tried to fit in and be what they want when it just really wasn't a match anymore. And I, I think I did that because I didn't want to feel like I failed, but in the end, all it was is that we no longer were a good match. 
you know, it's time to move on. Time and to get a divorce. Basically, very much. And I think there is, at least in our generation, maybe some of that mentality, you know, of not wanting to give up. But ending the ending my job there wasn't really giving up. It was giving myself hope and giving myself a new chance. So that's one thing I would change. I do question at times whether or not I maybe should have been in another field that was maybe more um, affirming, you know, I mean, or rewarding. Engineering is kind of a self-gratification, you know, you do it, you do a good job, and you have to be happy with what you're doing and how you did. You're never going to have someone say thank you or someone say good job. No you pat know, on the back. It, 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 yeah, it, it isn't that at all. And I realize that I do kind of, um, I want that, you know, and engineering doesn't do that for you. So um, I think you have to know yourself well enough and know people that work in engineering and the personalities, the most engineers don't have a whole lot of emotion or. <laughs> You're going <laughs> to say personality. Be, yeah, <laughs> personality. <laughs> There's not going to be very many extroverts, you know. So I, I think you really do have to know um, the environment that you're going into and understand that and be okay with that and be, be able to thrive in that. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today, Carrie. It's been really a pleasure to have you here. And I hope that we can do this again sometime. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for this first episode of Ordinarily Extraordinary, Conversations with Women in STEM. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out the show notes where we will talk about the acronyms and other technical information that was shared during the podcast. And please join us for future episodes. Thank you.